He's not just going to stand out there and ask a foreign country to investigate his political rival. He's going to ask two foreign countries. China should start an investigation into the Biden. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI. Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. And I'm here again because, well, if you were a regular listener of the show, you know, Brad's father took suddenly ill. They took off to Arizona to be with him. Unfortunately, Harvey Friedman lost his battle and he passed away. So Brad and Desi have been dealing with family, funerals, Shiva, and all the associated stuff that goes along with being the adult child of an aging parent. So we're holding down the fort here until they get back. I thank you for bearing with me. As always, feel free to reach out, contact me with any questions or comments or feedback. I'm at Nicole at NicoleSandler.com, on Twitter at Nicole Sandler. And of course, if you enjoy the work I'm doing filling in for Brad, perhaps you'll check out my program at NicoleSandler.com. All right, it's been one hell of a week, and it's not over yet. There's so much going on, so let me do my best to bring you up to date on what's happened since we last spoke. Friday was another crazy day, (laughs) perfect to cap off a crazy week. The Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, Michael Atkinson, finally left after six and a half hours of testimony to the House Intelligence Committee shortly after five o'clock Friday afternoon. Congressman Adam Schiff said he would not be speaking following Atkinson's testimony. Instead, he'll issue a statement, which at press time had still not been released. So in the meantime, here's what else happened. The three committees leading the impeachment inquiry have now requested documents from Vice President Mike Pence. The request is for documents related to, quote, any role you may have played in the Ukraine matter for the impeachment inquiry. The message also contained this 
warning of sorts. You appear to condone President Trump's efforts to press foreign powers to target the president's political opponents with baseless conspiracy theories. Your failure or refusal to comply with the request, including at the directing or behest of the president or the White House, shall constitute evidence of obstruction of the House's impeachment inquiry and may be used as an adverse interference against you and the president. Alrighty then. This follows a very busy Thursday night, during which House investigators released a bunch of text messages that show senior State Department officials coordinating with the Ukrainian president's top aide and Donald Trump's personal attorney to leverage a potential summit between the heads of state. The texts clearly show quid pro quo, that the meeting would have depended on whether Ukrainian President Zelensky promised to investigate the 2016 U.S. election and an energy company that employed the son of 2020 Democratic candidate Joe Biden. Michael McFaul is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. He appeared on MSNBC shortly after the texts were made public Thursday night and explained how truly damning they are for the president. We have a lot of information now that uh, was just released about texts between Ambassador Volker, between our EU ambassador. Goodness knows why he is involved in any of this, by the way. Uh, and it is not just this phone call. We now know that they were prepping the phone call, and the quid pro quo is clear as day in these texts. The quid pro quo is not only do you need to open an investigation, Mr. Zelensky, but you need to put it on the record that you are going to do this investigation. Oh, and you need to also put it on the record that you are going to expose what Ukraine did in interfering in the 2016 elections. Extraordinary stuff that just that just dropped a few minutes ago. But it shows that it's a much bigger story. It wasn't just an off the cuff remark that the president, as, as he sometimes does, as you and I know, uh, uh, this was all uh, calculated. And then the next day we have a delegation there. Mr. Volker himself is in Ukraine to try to follow up on what the president said in that call. Those texts were provided to investigators by former special U.S. envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, during his nearly 10-hour deposition on Thursday. And on Friday afternoon, Volker's opening statements were released to the public. I'll post links to both the text messages and the opening statement at bradblog.com along with today's program, so you can read for yourself. Now, Thursday provided a true moment of surrealism when, during the latest edition of Trump's Chopper Talk, the president finally answered the question posed to him repeatedly at Wednesday's press conference. What exactly did you want Zelensky to do regarding the Bidens? This time he answered, but he did it again. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Bidens. It's a very simple answer. Uh, they should investigate the Bidens, because how does a company that's newly formed and all these companies, if you look at and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens, because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. So I would say that President Zelensky, if it were me, I would recommend that they start 
an investigation into the Biden. Yep, you heard right. Donald Trump on Thursday urged another foreign government to probe former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. He said the Chinese government should look into Hunter Biden's involvement with an investment fund that raised money in that country. Now, keep in mind, the United States is in the midst of a very tense trade war with China that Donald Trump provoked. And he made those comments during Chopper Talk just 30 seconds after he said this about negotiations with Beijing on a possible trade agreement. I have a lot of options on China, but if they don't do what we want, we have tremendous, uh, tremendous power. And to further complicate matters, CNN is reporting that during a June 18th phone call with Chairman Xi, Trump not only raised Biden's political prospects, but those of Senator Elizabeth Warren as well, who by then had started rising in the polls. In that call, Trump also told Xi he'd remain quiet on Hong Kong protests as long as the trade talks were progressing. And the notes of that call were stored by the White House in that highly secured electronic system where they stashed the now infamous July 25th call between Trump and Zelensky. It's always the cover-up, isn't it? Now, on Friday, in addition to the Intelligence Community's Inspector General testifying before the House Intelligence Committee, Congress was also waiting for the official response from the State Department to a subpoena from those key House committees for documents. Mike Pompeo, early this week, set the stage for the executive branch to resist or perhaps negotiate. Once again, at press time, still no word on a response to the subpoenas. Coming up next, I'll be joined by the author of a brand new book dealing with abortion rights. Kind of topical since the Supreme Court today announced that's one of the cases they'll be taking up in the term that begins next week. Stay tuned. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host for today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. So you leave me no choice in the matter. You leave me no choice in the matter. You leave me no choice in the matter. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm your guest host, Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi until they can return which should not be too much longer now. They're kind of in the home stretch. The funeral is over. They sat Shiva. And now they've got to return to Arizona and clean up some stuff, but soon. And on the next edition of the broadcast, I'll have a better idea of exactly when they'll be returning. But never fear, they are coming back. 
and sooner rather than later. In the meantime, we're holding down the fort here for you. Now, Friday was a busy day as the Supreme Court gets ready to start their next term. It officially kicks off on Monday, the first Monday in October. On Friday, the court announced one of the cases they will be taking up this term deals with abortion rights. When you look at the nine justices, now includes the two ultra-conservative right-wingers that Donald Trump appointed, it gives us even more cause for concern. Joining me on the line now is Jenny Brown, whose new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, just hit stores this week. And Jenny, it's uh, great timing because just this morning, the Supreme Court announced that they're going to hear the case of June Medical Services versus G this term. That's the Louisiana case that would require doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges to a nearby hospital. We've, we've seen this movie before, but it's a law similar to the Texas law the Supreme Court struck down in 2016. But basically, this gives this new... A very conservative Supreme Court, a chance to once again weigh in on the abortion issue. Thank you for having the book released this week, uh, because we need it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, this whole last year, there, it would have been hard to not release it when something exciting or disastrous was happening around abortion. Right. Um, yeah. Well, the book is important because it covers the history of the abortion not only the abortion movement, but having access to a legal abortion in this country. I would think that a lot of women don't know, because uh, frankly, I didn't, that abortion was fully legal in the United States for a century until 1873. What happened? Yeah, I mean, that history is very well hidden. Um, so at the founding of the country, abortion was was legal through quickening, which and they didn't even really think of it as abortion necessarily because there wasn't a, a pregnancy test at the time. Hmm. But quickening is when you feel the fetus move around the fourth month. Um, and that w- relied on the person who was pregnant to say that they had felt the fetus move. So essentially, you can say that abortion was legal pretty much for any abortion that people would want to get. And what happened is in the 1840s, the American Medical Association was newly formed and the doctors were trying to establish themselves as a profession. And so through the 1840s, the 1860s, they campaigned against abortion. First of all, they wanted to put um, medicine on a more scientific basis, but they also wanted to put their competition out of business and their competition consisted of nurse midwives who were the ones who were doing a lot of the primary care and in small towns and and really everywhere um, and were also providing abortions. They couldn't get the clergy or the newspapers to join them in this crusade against abortion, basically because the clergy thought it would annoy their congregations and the um, newspapers were taking a lot of ads from abortion providers. Huh. But they finally did get traction after after the Civil War. And part of the reason was that it was abortion was becoming a very common operation for married women who were trying to limit their family size. Previously, they were somewhat sympathetic to women who had gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and that could be really difficult for that person. But as they saw it really becoming something that was very standard for women to avoid the duties and responsibilities of married life, as one of them put it, and the birth rate was uh, going down among native-born women and uh, increasingly, there were a lot of immigrants, many of them Catholics, who were having lots of kids. 
So ironically, a lot of the anti-abortion sentiment was an anti-Catholic sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, they did crack down. And by 1873, when the Comstock law goes through, a lot of states had already made abortion illegal. And um, with the Comstock law, it's completely shut down. Any information about abortion, contraception or sex, really, um, was was outlawed. And uh, and you couldn't you know, you couldn't have a bookstore with a book which had a diagram of the reproductive tract of (laughs) of a female, for example, um, you would be shut down. So that complete freeze out of all that information. Let's talk about the 60s, because abortion remained illegal throughout the country until the women's liberation movement that sprung up in the 1960s began pushing back. I don't know how old you are, but Jenny Brown, you seem too young to have been involved in the 1960s start of the women's liberation movement, but your bio is really impressive. It says you're a women's liberation organizer, former editor of Labor Notes. You were a leader in the grassroots campaign to make the morning after pill available over the counter. You were a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. For 10 years, uh, you're a fellow Floridian. You co-chaired the Alachua County Labor Party organizing for national health insurance, the right to a job at a living wage, free higher education, and a working person's political party. I love this. Under the Labor Party slogan, the corporations have two parties. We need one of our own. So, And we still do. We, but anyway. yes, we still do, and that's a topic for another day, I suppose. <laughs> right. But you've been fighting this fight, it seems, your entire, I'm guessing, adult life, but probably even before you were an adult, yes? Yeah, yeah, I got involved very young. I mean, my, my first uh, activity was actually in Florida, trying to shut down the special session on abortion in 1989 when, uh, you know, the Supreme Court said states could make more restrictions and Florida wanted to be the first one. And our Republican governor, Bob Martinez, wanted to be the first one to do that. And we shut down the session. Um, It it closed a couple days early. Uh, We had 10,000 people invading the Capitol and including invading the legislature. And um, so that was a very gratifying uh, people's victory. And that sort of kept me going, thinking, okay, we can win this. And I still think we can win this. Well, what happened in the 60s, there was a sort of professional movement bumping along, trying to get exceptions to the abortion law through the 50s and 60s, because, of course, the carnage of the abortion law, there were all wards full of people who had tried to give themselves abortions or had gotten Mm. abortions from a quack and had gotten horrible infections and were hospitalized and many died. So... Professionals who were were dealing with those folks um, were obviously wanted some humanitarianism put into the law, but they bumped along trying to, you know, get exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, fetal deformity. Mm -hmm. And they did get a few states to make those exceptions, but that really didn't affect the mass of women who wanted abortions because, of course, most people get abortions because they don't want to have a kid, not because of some tragic circumstance. Right. So... When the women's liberation movement came along, they really changed the tenor of the whole movement. They demanded repeal of all abortion laws, get it out of the law. Why is there anything punitive about, and I think we still should have this position, why is there punishment for any kind of uh, pregnancy outcome? It should not be treated by the criminal law. Exactly. and they were fighting on their own behalf. They they did consciousness raising. They they talked about their illegal abortions. They talked about the reasons that they had them. They saw that the laws that were proposed uh, would not help them. And so they actually broke up reform hearings. You know, these sympathetic professionals who were trying to ch- change the law slightly and demanded repeal, which I think is 
an opposition that continues today where we have people sort of backing down and saying, oh, well, what about rape and incest? What about the life of the mother? What about cancer? Rather than making a full-throated appeal that for women's freedom, we need absolute freedom on reproductive decisions, both to have kids and to not have kids. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, we also have in this country a very serious history of forced sterilization of poor women, women of color, um, particularly African-Americans and, and Native people. So I think we need to get back to that basic demand of repeal of all abortion laws. It should not be in the criminal code. There should not be restrictions on what medical personnel can provide it. Right now, we see, for example, in Louisiana, that that admitting privileges law goes on top of a law which says that only doctors can provide abortions. Well, 30% of abortions now, that consists of handing you a pill. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then telling you to go home and mm -hmm. take a few more pills 24 hours later. That is not something that it needs, you know, a, a midwife can do that. A nurse, it could even be over the counter at sure. this point. Some, right. some obstetricians have been arguing. So all of these laws are designed to restrict the supply and make it easier to restrict the supply, which they've been doing. And we also face in this country enormous costs for abortion, which when European countries following the United States um, women's liberation movement legalized abortion in the early 70s, they just included it in their national health plan. Right. So uh -huh. there was never a question, can you afford to get an abortion. Whereas here, there's always been that question, can you afford to get an abortion? Right. You know, I was a kid in the 70s. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure much older than you. And uh, in high school in the 1970s. And I get, I'm lucky, I guess, in that I've never been pregnant. So I never had to make that choice. But I remember in high school, there was a Planned Parenthood office really right across the street from, I, I grew up in Hollywood, Florida, from Hollywood Hills High School. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where I got my first prescription for the birth control pill at the whopping age of 15. And um, I accompanied a dear friend of mine there uh, when she had to have an abortion. Yeah. So I've experienced it from that. Um, uh, again, I'm lucky, uh, but I've learned that something like one in four women sometime during their childbearing years will make that choice to have an, uh, have an abortion. And I was, I was involved in a very powerful moment. It was at Netroots Nation back in 2012 when Darcy Berner, who was at the time a candidate for Congress, tried an experiment. She was delivering a keynote speech in the big ballroom, and she asked women who were willing to, if, who'd ever have an abortion, if they were willing to basically come out of the closet and stand. And somewhere mm -hmm. around 150 women stood. And That's then she, so great. It was yeah, amazing. This is really important. It really for, is. Yeah. For And we need to provide support for those who speak out and then uh, experience repercussions. Um, mm -hmm. Amelia Bono of Shout Your Abortion, when she she and Lindy West and Kim Morrison started that group, they got death threats. Mm. Some of them had to move out of their houses because of the because of the uh, intimidation. You know, so what we need to do is have like an organizational support structure for people who are speaking out and and taking a stand because. You know, we know that we get repercussions when we speak out, whether it's from um, our families or maybe from a job or rumors at our kids' kindergarten, whatever the things are. And we need to break through that stigma. The more and the more of us 
that are willing to take that step and talk about having had an abortion, the better off we are. And it, it's it's 30 percent. Usually people say one in three or one, one in, in three, four because 30 right? percent is in between. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but it's 30 percent. So wow. it's not really an extraordinary um, situation or an emergency or anything that we should get. It's very normal. Right. It's, and it's, it's and so the point normal. was that it, it, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is a safe, legal um, you know, alternative to having to carry a pregnancy to term, an unwanted uh, pregnancy to term. And then she asked of the other remaining uh, couple of thousand people in the room, who would be willing to stand with those women? And it was almost, you know, I mean, everyone stood. And it was a moment that was very powerful. A few people then applauded, which, of course, the, the, the right-wing media seized upon to say, oh, Netroots Nation, they cheered abortion. That's not what it was at all. It's supporting women who have taken advantage of the law to have a safe, legal abortion. And and here we are today, again, with, with our, our abortion rights under siege. Um, I used to think that the right used abortion as a wedge and fundraising issue. I honestly didn't believe that they'd ever follow through with trying to overturn Roe v. Wade because it was such a great fundraiser for them. Um, do you think that the, the religious, uh, sorry, nuts, as I refer to them, um, have overtaking the Republican Party um, pushed them further than many of them originally wanted to go? Well, this is what we've always heard, right? That abortion is the issue that's uh, that wedges uh, Catholics in the Democratic Party away from the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. and it's it's to fire up an evangelical religious base that's anti-abortion. But I tend to think that that um, that story is is getting a little frayed. Yes. One thing that's happened in the United States is that our birth rate has gone down considerably below replacement levels. So it's now at 1.72 children on average per woman. Um, the replacement level is 2.1. It's sort of, it's sort of uh, stayed around replacement level, a little below it, um, through the 90s and early 2000s with the, with the great recession or whatever we're calling it, the economic crash. Mm -hmm. um, it went down and it has never come back up. They were expecting it to come back up. And the reason is it's so darn hard to have kids in the United States. We don't have any paid leave. Yep. The childcare situation is terrible. Um, the birth so process did, is expensive. Um, and then there's climate change, where I, uh, you know, I, I couldn't imagine bringing a child onto this planet now. I'm a parent by way of adoption, I should mention, and there's lots of children out there who need homes, so that that's a way forward for those not wanting to bring a child into this world. And I understand there's a lot of people who feel that way, but this is off topic. Yeah, I mean, what what has happened is that um, as the U.S. birth rate has gone down, the establishment's gotten kind of panicked about it. And I, um, you know, I detail some of this stuff in the book. Um, where they're really demanding that we have more kids, but rather than making it easier by providing childcare or, mm -hmm. or uh, universal national health care <laughs> right? system, right, um, which would require taxing the rich and, yep. and getting rid of the insurance companies, they, um, they have just made it harder for us to get uh, abortion and contraception and are hoping that the birth rate will rise as a result. But, of course, people are resisting this, and so that's why we're seeing this low birth rate you know, the um, big employers and, and economic planners are very worried that that aspect of our growth, um, the growth of the economy, which is driven by the growth of population, is going to flag and will be like Japan, which had uh, many years of economic stagnation, which 
some economists attribute to their um, low birth rate and their actual declining population now. So they have a declining population since 2011. Um, not just the growth rate declining, the, the population itself is actually declining. So that's, you know, declining population is not a problem for the 99%, um, but it is a problem for people who are relying for their profits on growth in the economy. And so I think that's why we're seeing so much establishment support for um, limiting our reproductive rights. And that, and we've also seen, you know, these racist uh, uh, things coming out with, you know, Trump asking why can't more Norwegians uh, uh, immigrate to the United <laughs> right, States? Yes. Why would they? They have national health care. Uh-huh, exactly. Ha- happy Free college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's true. Uh, um, and and we're you know, yeah. And Steve King tweeting about we can't rebuild our population on someone else's baby. So so we're seeing a lot of that happening, and um, and I think it's all related. Most definitely. Uh, Jenny Brown is our guest. The new book is called Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. It just hit stores this week. Uh, Again, it provides a great uh, historical perspective on abortion rights in this country, how they were taken away and the fight to get them back. And here we are now in in 2019. Uh, Jenny, you know, I took great notice that you're also in Florida where um, we still don't, you know, we're, we're one of the states that never ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Perhaps if we had that, we'd have a better chance at at retaining our our right to choose. Yeah, and that would be a better basis to be fighting for it than um, privacy, which is was really invented by the Supreme Court uh, to decide this, um, the the 1965 Griswold uh, birth control case. And then they sort of brought that forward into row. But I think it infects our political discourse about it. And we talk a lot about privacy when, in fact, we want to make our abortions as public as possible. So people who are scared will feel more, you know, will will it will break through the shame. Right. And that I'm so glad you brought that up, because, again, most people don't realize that the abortion ruling Roe v. Wade was based. It was it was a Fourth Amendment privacy right thing. It wasn't about that we actually women have the right to choose what happens with our bodies, which, again, would make more sense, seemingly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, in fighting for birth control in the in the 20s and 30s, um, women did try to argue that um, it was a right to pursuit of happiness. They argued that it was um, part of the anti-slavery amendment. You know, they tried other uh, things, but nothing stuck. And what the court was willing to do basically left them in control of who can get abortions under what circumstances. And for the women's liberation movement, that was never the goal. The goal was always to have the control be completely in the hands of those who are pregnant. So, um, so that's, uh, that's really what, um, what we're, I think we should aim for now. And we should, we shouldn't let the uh, legal argument sort of get in the way of coming up with our political strategy. So what is the strategy going forward now? Obviously, we mentioned at the top that today, Friday, the Supreme Court announced they would be hearing an abortion rights case this term. And the Supreme Court is newly top heavy with um, not only Republican uh, appointed judges, justices, but really right wing, um, horrible (laughs) justices like Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, How do we fight back against this? Well, I don't think we should despair because let's remember that the Supreme Court, you know, 
everybody was against abortion in the 1960s, and the Supreme Court somehow found a way to make it legal. And the reason they did that was all of the ferment on the streets. Look, you had people uh, uh, doing underground abortions. You had clergy counseling for underground abortions and getting arrested for it. You had doctors openly doing abortions and getting arrested for it. You had women's liberationists marching in the streets demanding repeal of all laws. You had an enormous, um, enormous ferment around it. And that's really what we need to do today is show that it will not work if they, um, if they uh, want to roll it back. Politically, it is going to be such a controversy that they just don't want to do it. So that's, I think that's our role to, to, you know, because the court will follow where the people lead. That's our role is to make as much hell as possible. And I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to start demanding um, that there be no laws. Um, and really, uh, next time we sue, let's sue on behalf of women's rights to be free. Let's, uh, you know, let's not focus on the on kind of the the rights of doctors to practice. Um, let's let's focus on the women. Yeah. And so and then the other thing um, I think that we need to think about is the abortion pill has made it's there's never been a, a better time to have a self-managed at home abortion. Um, the abortion pill has made that possible. And um, it is uh, right now hidden behind this FDA regulation called REMS, which makes it very hard to, for people to get. Um, it makes it very expensive. Um, it requires things from clinics. Not any doc, any doctor can't just prescribe it the way they can prescribe other drugs. Hmm. And REMS has, is used for dangerous, dangerous drugs like experimental drugs with cancer that might help but might kill you. And it's completely inappropriate for the wow. abortion pill, which has been used in um, here since 2000 in and about 30 percent of abortions are done with it and um it has a very good safety record so i think we need to fight to make that more available and go on the offensive um you know and we may have to do civil disobedience the way they did with the birth control pill with or, or with birth control that was before the pill mm -hmm. um and um you know we may we may need to really break some laws to try to make this happen. There's, um, you know, there's a lawsuit right now to get the REMS off of the, off of the abortion pill, which would mean that any doctor could then prescribe it. Um, so there, there are a lot of different angles that we can take that are more, um, that are more proactive and offensive than the ones where we just are constantly just marching on the Capitol and being defensive. I should also mention that there's, uh, an effort right now in New York, um, the Democratic Socialists of America have been discussing, um, you know, what actions to take um, when the court considers one of these bills mm -hmm. and, you know, massive action to, um, you know, they think, you know, a, a national strike of some kind. Um, so these things are also in the offing. And, and I would urge people to join an organization. Don't just give money to Planned Parenthood and NARAL, join a group that's doing stuff. Right, um, and, and that was going to be my next question. Who is leading yeah. the charge? And I, I was going to mention Planned Parenthood and NARAL. Who is the best? Um, is well, there a I central think their clearinghouse? Strategy, they're getting a little more more militant as things have gotten mm -hmm. so bad. Mm -hmm. But but their general strategy has been lobbying and litigation um, and then an occasional march. Uh, I think we need uh, I think we need a lot more. 
Um, and I don't think the lobbying is is uh, the effective method. Of course, we'll always have to do a little lobbying and litigation. But I think the main thing is for us to be organizing people to not be apologetic about abortion and get out on the streets and and really have a um, have a fight that's on the basis of for women to be free, we need to have control over our reproductive systems. And this, um, you know, this has to be the fight. It's we can't we can't um, sort of back down and say, oh, what about these tragic cases? We really have to talk about uh, abortion on demand and we should be demanding that it be in our national health system mm-hmm. um, the way it is in so many other countries. Absolutely. Uh, Jenny Brown, the, the book is, again, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. I noticed that this is the second book you've published in 2019. The first is Birth Strike. What's that about? Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. It is about the uh, what I mentioned with the birth rate going down and the struggle around um, having kids. Um, there's a whole chapter of testimonies from people who have... Uh, decided to either not have kids or stop at one mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the conditions are so difficult. Um, and I really go into the, um, the power structures reasons for wanting more children, um, the arguments around social security, which by the way, are completely bogus, but, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. but are, are significant to them because they don't want to pay it. And, um, and s- some of the arguments around military recruitment, I, uh, I go into into depth into uh, the different factions in the immigration fight, uh, factions within the anti-immigration and uh, Republican Party, and then there are pro-immigration Republicans. They're not pro-immigrant; they want to terrorize immigrants, <laughs> but course. they do want them here. Right? Um, they want so the labor. Go, they want I the go cheap into labor. All of that. So, right. if people are more interested in um, in getting more background on that, the uh, birth strike book is where to go. Awesome. Jenny Brown, it's so nice to talk with you and nice to meet a fellow progressive activist, feminist, Floridian. (laughs) Yes, people can be quite apathetic down here. So um, thank you for that. Uh, Again, the book is Without Apology, uh, The Abortion Struggle Now. It is one, shouldn't be one at this point in 2019, but it is. So we need to get in on the fight. And um, we need to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Can we get on that to get Florida to come into the 21st century? Right. Please. Jenny Brown, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Some battles never end. Coming up next, we're going to look at the world of charities, actually one charity in particular, with a guy who has dealt with nonprofits and fundraising and oversight his entire career. And he looks at the case of a charity that was smeared by the media unfairly, and it almost destroyed them. You'll be surprised, I think, when you hear about it. That's coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Don't give up. You've got a reason to live. Can't forget. We only get 
Welcome back. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting the broadcast. We'll finish up today's show with a cautionary tale. Don't believe everything you hear from the media. Not that you needed me to say that. But in this case, we're talking about a charity that was almost ubiquitous until it wasn't anymore. And it was all due to a false news report that upended what was, by all accounts, a charity that really helped injured veterans returning home from war. Doug White is the author of a new book called Wounded Charity, Lessons from the Wounded Warrior Project Crisis. Now, I remember, you know, being a a TV addict that I am, seeing tons of, well, they weren't commercial public service announcements for the Wounded Warrior Project years ago. And then I do remember hearing that there were there was some controversy surrounding them over where the funds raised were going. Well, I put them out of my mind. I hadn't heard about them in a few years, out of out of sight, out of mind, right? Then I get this book in the mail. And it turns out the author, Doug White, our guest, is a longtime leader in our country's philanthropic philanthropic community. He's a teacher, advisor, and an author. He's co-chair of the Foolproof Foundation's Walter Cronkite Project Committee, a governing board member of the Secular Coalition of America. You, you've dealt with, it seems like your whole life, dealing with um, nonprofits and fundraising organizations, um, where you work with them on ethics and fundraising and things like that. Do I have your background kind of right? You said it pretty well and pretty briefly, and that's perfect. <laughs> cool. Well, um, so in September, from reading some of your book, in September of 2016, you completed a review of the allegations against the Wounded Warrior Project, and that is the basis of this book that you've just published. It was released officially yesterday, again, called Wounded Charity, Lessons from the Wounded Warrior Project Crisis. Um, were you involved with the Wounded Warrior Project, or you, as an observer, you saw that something was going on in Wanted to figure out what happened. As an observer, I did want to figure out what happened. The news reports were startling. And at the time, it was funny because most of the work that I had been doing was about taking down or trying to expose charities that were really behaving badly. So when I heard the report first, I thought, yeah, there's probably a real big bad story in here. But I got called by a volunteer, Peter Honerkamp, at Wounded Warrior Project. And he said, this is not the organization I know. Would you please call the CEO and the COO and see if they'll talk to you about this because another side of the story needs to come out. So, Nicole, I had nothing to do with the Wounded Warrior Project uh, crisis until Peter's phone call to me. And then when I talked to the CEO and the COO, they asked me, look, would I come down and do a, a complete evaluation of the organization after the allegations were made? And I said, I couldn't at that point because I was working full-time at Columbia running the nonprofit program, but let's talk later. And he said, well, that's great because they're going to do a financial audit. And at the end of that month, let's talk. He said it'd take about a month or so. The problem is at the end of that month and at the end of the financial audit, those two were both fired. And Peter Honerkamp, the volunteer, called back and said, this is making no sense at all. And what made no sense to me, aside from that phone call, was in the press release that the Wounded Warrior Project board put out, it said that all of the activities that they were doing were fine, that the press reports were essentially wrong, and that this was verified by a third party, but that we wanted to get rid of our two top guys. And so that became the the basis for my curiosity going forward. 
Gotcha. Well, well, let's go back to, you know, why they even called on you. It was, I'm looking at right now, a, a report from January of 2016 from CBS. And I guess CBS was the, the main um, uh, finger pointer here. Uh, the headline reads, Wounded Warrior Project Accused of Wasting Donation Money. And it goes on to talk about how, um, uh, here, how they spend donations compared to other long-respected charities. And it says, um, this report says, Disabled American Veterans Charitable Trust spends 96% of its budget on vets. Fisher House devotes 91%, but according to public records reported by Charity Navigator, the Wounded Warrior Project spends 60% on vets. And then there were reports of elaborate conferences and and conferences and uh, just uh, mariachi bands and maracas with the Wounded Warrior Project logo on it and and misuse of funds. Um, are you saying that none of that happened or that, that that they did spend more than 60% of the money they took in on the veterans? Pretty much that's what I'm saying. Huh. First of all, the 60% number is an incorrect number. Okay. That's because Charity Navigator was using the wrong data and they were doing so willfully. There's that. But on top of that, um, the the organization was not misspending money. Let's just be clear. This is how things get started. Right. And I like CBS News and I like the New York Times. I have a high regard for both of those as journalistic enterprises. But this particular story, they got completely wrong. Um, and where they got it wrong was, and you just read the headline, mm-hmm. there was no mis- misappropriation of money. There wasn't a dime of misappropriation of money. In fact, the audit that was done during that month showed that not one dime over over a six or seven year period was misspent. No money was spent on alcohol at conferences. In fact, that allegation was particularly hurtful to the CEO and the COO because one of the core missions of Wounded Warrior Project, and there are several, but this one core mission is that there's a great big uh, rate of suicide among veterans. And a large part of that is alcoholism. And so Wounded Warrior Project is on record and in practice does not spend money on alcohol for any anything. Now, that isn't to say that individuals can't buy their own drinks or whatever. Sure. But they went through thousands of receipts for years and found two drinks over that entire period of time. I don't know if this is, uh, if I'm remembering this accurately, but out of thousands and thousands of drinks, I think those two were for board members. So I just, the, the, the story just did not add up. And it was based on some, basically some former employees who are very disgruntled. You know, it's interesting because we've, we've got two chat rooms going during the show. This, we're, this is a live interview. Um, and somebody said when I brought up a Wounded Warriors project, wasn't that the charity that Donald Trump was allegedly going to give money to? Now, we're, this, is, this is a problem where people conflate one organization with another. There was, if you remember, I guess, Jory, I don't, when Donald Trump decided not to participate in one of the debates and instead said he was going to do an event for the veterans and made a big show of he was giving a check. And we learned that that was nonsense. There was no charity. There was no check. He didn't do anything. That was not the Wounded Warrior Project. That was some other fly-by-night, ostensibly veterans charity. Do you know anything about that one? Yeah, no, I don't know anything about that one, except to say that that was not the the Wounded Warrior Project. Right. Well, but the point I'm getting at is there are so many. Now, Wounded Warriors has been around for a while. It was easy to take them down with this smear. I don't know what happened after the the CBS reporting 
between then and your book, we'll find out in a moment. But there are many charities who go out, who are out there uh, in the public sphere, who are not um, legitimate players, who don't uh, do what they purport to do with the money that they raise. How does a, a, somebody who wants to support, say, a veterans group, how do they decide, how do they figure out who's legit and who isn't? Well, the answer to that is that the donor or the potential donor ought to go kick the tires, mm. uh, look at the website, look at the 990. That's the information return that is sent to the IRS. That's information that the donor can use. But then on top of that, get to know the people there, either by phone or by email. Find out things about the board, how long the board has been around as far as how many people have been there for how long and that sort of a thing. And get a sense of the credibility Find out if there are any news stories about it. Now, in this particular case, a, a search for that would show that the yeah. wounded warrior behaved badly. So there's there's that caveat, and that's what this book is trying to uh, right. correct. But, but, but realistically, <laughs> realistically, somebody watching, as I mentioned earlier, watching late night TV, and they see a PSA for the Wounded Warrior Project and say, well, that sounds great. I want to help. They're not going to take the time to open a conversation with the board of directors and find out who's doing what. They want to send 20 bucks. Um how do you know, that's right? right? How do you know who you can there is, trust? There is no way to know. No that's, way. That's, I think, the big problem. And my feeling is that uh, there needs to be a better way to know. And organizations like Charity Navigator are not the way to go about knowing more. Hmm. So, and the reason I say that, just I don't want to just throw that out and leave it. They're not good at evaluating charities because the only thing they evaluate is, are numbers uh, on that information return, and that can be very subjective, and and there are no real standards for how much should be spent on what. It is my view, yes, charities should be very efficient, but it's more important that charities make an impact or have an impact on their communities, however that's defined. And it might take 60 cents or 40 cents, I should say, on the dollar to do that administratively. That is not a red flag. Now, that's not the number that really was true for Wounded Warrior Project, but the point is that you have to look more than just at the numbers. Uh, I gotcha. Uh, you you uh, want to see what the, what good the, the group is doing. So before the CBS report in 2016 on the Wounded Warrior Project, uh, as far as I know, they were, you know, th th there weren't red flags. So was it just the CBS investigation and the report and then the, the New York Times piled on? And, and th what effect did it have? Well, I wouldn't really characterize the CBS report as an investigation. Okay. I, I would, I would, I would <laughs> their words. No, I, it's I, their words. It's right? just that what they did was not an investigation. Right. That's they what they called it. A bunch of, <laughs> yeah. They, they listened to a bunch of disgruntled employees and took their word for it and went for it. And they don't know much about charities. That's the other thing. If you're going to evaluate or do a story like this, you should know what you're talking about. And that's part of the problem because there's so much going on there. For example, the conference that made the headlines, mm -hmm. that's the kind of conference any large organization would have. And they went out and they actually did a, a survey to find out how many uh, dollars they'd have to spend. And they got it very inefficiently. And it's not uncommon for that kind of a conference to take place and to increase morale. And so that criticism was totally unfounded. So what I think is what, well, what I know is that the New York Times actually was doing a story about this. And I know this because they had called me some weeks earlier, about a month and a half earlier. And the tenor of what we talked about had nothing to do with what ended up happening on, on their front page. They got wind, excuse me, CBS got wind of this story and then kind of, kind of edged themselves into it and made it 
as if it was uh, some breaking news story. You'll look at the news on that story, and there's nothing breaking about it. So the question is, why did CBS kind of come into it? And to make a long story short, and this is where the book goes into detail, there is a board member, Richard Jones, who was on the board of Wounded Warrior Project, overseeing the area where CBS News was criticizing the most. Mm-hmm. Well, he, this person was and is a senior executive at CBS Corporation. So there was a huge conflict of interest going on when that story broke and afterwards. So I have a, I have a thought. I, I've outlined it in the book. I feel very strongly this is the case. That person had ties to a couple of other organizations that did not like Wounded Warrior Project. Now, the fact that uh, Wounded Warrior Project had nothing wrong with it doesn't mean they didn't get a lot of criticism. A lot of that criticism came from organizations that felt that they were raising too much money and that was sucking out money from other organizations. Mm. That's not true, but that's how they felt. And so I feel like there was some bad blood, if you will, among the charitable community members. And this is partly what was going on there. I think that there was a there was an effort to take down or at least neuter uh, uh, Wounded Warrior Project. Right. So it, it did it work? I mean, I know, as I said, I guess in 2016 or before, they were everywhere. It was everywhere. And now we don't hear much about them anymore. Are they still in existence? Oh, yes, they're still in existence. And I would go so far to say they're still a good organization. They did, however, over the la- over the three years after uh, Steve and Al were fired, lose over $640 million over that three-year period because wow. of this crisis wow. and because of the inability of the board and the new leadership to really take over that vision. I have to tell you, the vision for Wounded Warrior Project was huge. What they did, unlike most organizations, they said, and I'm going to borrow a phrase that you were using with your last guest, John. Okay. They are a sentinel of public trust. Uh-huh. They Charities are, and, and, and this is really how we have to look at it, and they are a sentinel of the public trust. And so when they saw what their job was, that is to take care of veterans who are coming back after the Afghan and, 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 and um, Afghan, uh, Iraq, 9-11, right. they, they said that this is going to take a lot of money. And they wanted to put a trust together that would have about a billion dollars in it. They looked like they were going to go there and they they defined the problem, knew what the cost would be and raised to that goal. Um, Now the vision is a little bit less expansive. They've stopped that long-term trust. And so it's it's shrunk, but it's still a good charity. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing nothing wrong with the charity. It's just that it's a different place now. And I feel like it's a lesser place in some ways uh, than what it was when the old guard was there. But still, um, it's a very worthy charity. Well, that's good to hear, because everything I heard about them until this CBS story was was positive. Um, but like someone in the in the chat room just said, I always wondered about the Wounded Warriors Project. I think it's when a charity gets so big and is almost omnipotent, it's, it's everywhere, you wonder about it. And then a story like this certainly doesn't help. So what does a, a, a nonprofit organization, a charity like this, who does great work helping our injured warriors returning from uh, battle, how, how, do they, how do they fight back against a, a smear campaign like this? Well, I have to tell you, the board blew it in that particular case. Mm. They did not fight back. They muzzled uh, Steve and Al. That's Steve Nardese and Al Giordano, the former CEO and COO. And so there was no response. And I think you know, based on what I've heard in your 
own programs. I think you've got a really good instinct on this. Thank you don't sit there and let, and, and take it. Mm-hmm. You don't get water. You don't get you, you don't get swift boated is what I was going to say, right. like John Kerry did back in the day. You you take it head on. And Steve Nardizzi knew this, but he was not allowed to go out and talk about it. So one of the one of the recommendations I would make and do make to charities is that you have to have a crisis plan in a in in ready to go, because you never know when you're going to need it, and you can't let everybody else define the narrative for you. That just doesn't work. Let me just also just say one other thing too, mm-hmm. because one of the reasons this this bad feeling took place. The Department of Defense did not like those ads, the ads you were referring really? to earlier, because uh-huh. they were too realistic. They felt that there was too much negative uh, imagery in those ads. War. And Hello. <laughs> that's right. You know, like go off to war and some people come back injured. Golly. Yep. Well, the thing is, those people who were in the ads wanted to be in the ads. They didn't feel like they were being used. Uh, and the Department of Defense was saying this is just a, a travesty. And uh, Steve stood his ground against uh, the chief of staff at the time and said, we're not going to change the ads. And you don't have any any say over what we do. You're the government. We're a nonprofit. So, wow. And we don't take any money from you guys anyway in, in the government period. So those ads and the tension that generate, was generated by the Department of Defense created more of that negative tension that I think led to some people not wanting Wounded Warrior Project to succeed. Wow. Well, it's a it's a cautionary tale. Wounded Charity, Lessons from the Wounded Warrior Project Crisis. Doug White is the author. It is out now, as of yesterday. Thank you for doing this. And and on behalf of uh, veterans who could use the extra support, because God knows uh, our government doesn't take care of them, they could use it too. So thanks for shining a light on this. Thanks for joining us today, Doug. And thank you. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of The Bradcast. With so much going on in the world, thank you for joining me as I try to keep you informed about what's happening. Brad and Desi will be back soon. It's been a really rough time for them. I'm glad I could be here for them to help keep things running here at the Bradcast until they can return. We'll let you know more on the next edition of the Bradcast. Until then, I'm Nicole Sandler, speaking for Brad and Desi and myself. Good luck, world. <laughs>